Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Our guest today is the former Deputy Director of Science and Technology and former Chief Operating Officer for the CIA. Doug Wolf dedicated 30-plus years to public service. In his roles, he saw the end of the Cold War through the presidential election of 2016. Doug is originally from California and has a degree in mechanical engineering from University of Southern California. Welcome to the show, Doug. Thank you for having me. Let's begin with your background, Doug. Tell us, how did you get into public service? Well, so actually, I, I am uh, from Wyoming and ended up going to college in Southern California, of all places. And interestingly enough, as, uh, as we were all looking for jobs in the engineering school, it was during the time when the Reagan recession was happening. And the class before me all had many different opportunities and offers, and we were all scrambling pretty hard. So one of the areas that I put my application in was to the CIA and um, was excited and learned more about their mission and was very interested in that. And then, uh, of course, it took time for security clearances and other things. So I ended up taking a job at Rocketdyne in the San Fernando Valley and worked on the space shuttle main engines for a year. And during that time, the agency called and said, hey, we'd like to interview you and came back and did the security processing. And at that point, I decided I was ready to take a chance and come to the East Coast. I'd never been east of the Mississippi, but I wanted to come to the East Coast and see what I was getting myself into. And I had no idea what um, uh, was ahead, but 33 years later, it, it was an amazing career, and I'm and I'm very glad I got involved in the public service. So today, you you started off in in Silicon Valley, and so today that area is um, well, they 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 call California the Left Coast, right? Yeah. Um, is not known for its conservative views. Now, there's certainly a lot of people with conservative views out there, mm-hmm. but um, what made you move to the CIA? after being in that community that may have been starting to influence you, for one thing, even the ability to be able to make a lot of money uh, was there for a technology, uh, an individual with a technology background. So being, uh, being in the San Fernando Valley, and, and uh, I, I had a, a tremendous opportunity to, to work on various aspects of the space shuttle main engine, but one of the things that the agency folks really emphasized to me is that if I were involved in public service, that I could be um, involved in large programs and other activities at a much more significant level. And as it turned out, that that totally turned out to be the case. Uh, I I was very active in large uh, space programs and other kinds of uh, development systems. And immediately after arriving, I, I was given quite a bit of responsibility for managing those activities and programs. So it was very exciting for a 22-year-old or somewhere around there to actually be involved in significant aspects of the intelligence community, and um, and and it was a great move for me early on. Um, I would recommend it to almost anyone early on. It's not that you have to stay 30 years, but at the same time, um, it was it was really significant to get that experience early. You know, I I, I have four kids, and uh, you know they're at various stages of college and post-college. And I, I have pushed them a little bit to look at public service because it's it's not only do you get that depth of experience, but you're also working on a mission. You're, you're helping yeah. 
uh, you know, get the bad guy or or make sure a little old lady gets her check. I mean, you know, working in public se- sector across the board, not just the intelligence community, can really make a difference. Absolutely. And, and it's not like you're in isolation. And one of the things I enjoyed about my career was while I was I was in the government, I spent a lot of time working with industry. So the aerospace industry, and then when I, when I was CIO at the agency, a lot with the IT industry as well. And it's really important that that uh, partnership with the industry uh, take place and is effective because uh, it's, it's really only through that partnership that the government gets the kinds of technology and, and performance that it needs. So any memorable stories early on that was an aha moment for you uh, early in your career that really formed who you are today? Well, there was uh, when I when I first started, I landed in a in a part of the agency that was associated with the National Reconnaissance Office, and it was all super classified at the time. Um, since then, the NRO has emerged and is public. Um, but I was able to work early on on some very amazing satellite systems, and they were all very classified at the time. But it was very exciting to me to see uh, that kind of technology and the and the kind of uh, technology risk that the government was taking to actually uh, go after the intelligence mission. And at that point, we were still in the midst of the Cold War. Um, while it was the Reagan recession, Reagan was actually part of the buildup of the agency and of the military. And so I participated on this side of actually developing and deploying a lot of reconnaissance capability. And uh, every time I was briefed on a new program, it was uh, eye-opening and very exciting. And eventually I realized there's a number of these programs out there, but I was ready to you know, commit my career to, to the one that we were getting started with. And, um, uh, and eventually, as you grow in management, you realize, hey, here's the big, the big picture. And that was very rewarding to see that as well. Well, it would be rewarding and exciting for anyone, and I hope my kids are out there listening. Um, Doug, let's fast forward a little bit to where um, you were at the agency at the end of the Cold War when the Berlin Wall came down. How did that change uh, the agency in its mission? So it was, uh, you know, a a huge event. Um, It was uh, very much of a reset, I think, in terms of thinking about and how we looked at intelligence. and, and really things were, were pretty wide open at that point. We had people that believed there was a big peace dividend and that we could really draw down defense and investment in intelligence community. We had those who were, um, in, in hindsight, very wise in terms of thinking about some of the other threats that were emerging. And there was discussions about uh, some of the terrorist threats and other things, not really knowing that 9-11 was you know, a, a handful of years around the corner. But one of the one of the things and one of the big mistakes that was made, I believe, back then was that we really had a hiring freeze uh, for a significant period of time. I want to say it was five to seven years. And the fact that we weren't bringing on new talent and we weren't building relationships at universities and um, really having people learn the intelligence tradecraft over that period of time uh, created a gap. And you can see that gap now in some of the uh, ranks in terms of senior leadership and other people ready to take on some of the highest level positions uh, at the agency. We did post 9-11, start a lot of hiring, the budgets went up, and a lot of that has, has been erased. But that peace dividend was a, uh, was, a, was a very difficult time. And there was, a lot of, uh, there was a lot of trades that had to be made through that time in terms of budget, and we really couldn't do everything. And so um, based on your view of the world, you would make 
uh, trades toward one technology or another, but we really went from what was a fairly um, sophisticated but fairly well understood adversary. Uh, it was large and certainly very lethal to a whole range of possible threats. And dealing with that spectrum is is a big challenge. And I think that full spectrum still exists today as you see the emergence of China and Russia as, as really kind of pure competitor threats. And yet we still have all of the issues associated with instability and terrorism and some of those other factions. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. Today we're talking with Doug Wolf. So Doug, let, let's talk about 9-11 and, and, um, and what it was like to be at the agency at that time. I'm sure it was a very high stress time to be at an intelligence agency. And as you mentioned, the Cold War budgets, uh, after the Cold War, uh, budgets were really cut uh, for Department of Defense and the intelligence agencies. Um, do you think that contributed to our nation being ready or not being ready to deal with the events of 9-11? Uh, in some ways, but I but I hate to say that it was, you know, that that it was a major factor. Had we had more money, I don't know that we. It, it's hard to say in hindsight would we have really been ready anyway, um, because it was uh, a fairly complex and much different uh, kind of kind of threat than we've ever seen. But I was very proud of the agency in the in the days post nine eleven. Virtually every directorate really grabbed a hold, and um, there are. Uh, a lot of uh, stories out there about the the capabilities that were delivered, the operations that were conducted. People were mobilizing within weeks. Um, people doing a lot of things at high personal risk, and um, and we're actually very very successful in in a number of those operations. Um, it was it was a uh, a challenging time, and of course. Uh, you would never have wanted the uh, the events of 9/11, but at the same time, it was an opportunity where, uh, across the board, from all of the uh, operational and engineering and analytic talent, was really pulling together. Um, all of the legal and security and contractual support pulled together to to create some new capabilities, and um, and then the government also responded with increased funding as well. So um, the amount of the amount of things we did and the accomplishments in those first two or three years post 9-11 were absolutely amazing. And many of those exist today and, and is a lot of what we base um, our current capabilities on. And we thank you for that service. Yeah. You know, you, you've seen a lot of uh, directors come and go and, and administrations uh, come and go over the 33 years that you've been at the agency. And, and it sounds like continuity and consistent helps drive that mission in a more effective manner. Um, how does a big change like uh, presidential, uh, you know, the presidential, uh, you know, election, um, how does that change the day-to-day business at an organization like the agency? So it can it can be a significant change, although um, you know it does depend on the on the director that comes in. Uh, for example, when when the Obama administration was first elected, uh, we were transitioning from George W. Bush and someone who had you know, what we, we felt like was a pretty strong interest in intelligence um, and then not sure how things were going to change as the transition happened. But Director Panetta arrived, and I think he was probably one of the finest directors that we ever had. Um, and one of the things that he did that I thought was incredibly helpful was pretty much support a lot of the existing uh, manage- management and leaders. He brought in very few 
outside people, but he was incredibly good at focusing the agency. And of course, um, during his tenure is when we had the successful raids on bin Laden and other activities as well. And so I think at at one level, it can change a fair amount, but the but a lot of the core missions don't change. And then I also believe as new administrations come in and they learn really what the agency can do, that um, that even ones that you might not anticipate turning to the agency for various things realize this is a very important national capability. And, um, and, and many of them uh, take advantage of the agency's capabilities uh, across across the board including getting all the analytic products that are developed. I'm speaking with Doug Wolf, former CIO and Science and Technology Deputy Director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Coming up, we'll talk about Doug's role and experience getting the CIA into the cloud business. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Doug Wolf, former CIO and former Deputy Director of Science and Technology of the CIA. Doug, this role of the CIA, uh, you were in that role several years. You were responsible for ushering the agency into the 21st century with state-of-the-art computing technology while ensuring our systems are secure. That's a big job. Cloud computing is being leveraged at least at some level by most agencies, but you helped the agency adopt it as a pioneer over five, six years ago. Um, so why then? Why cloud computing? I mean, you were seriously a trailblazer. So I did have an opportunity to serve as the CIO there, and uh, it, it started as being deputy CIO. I had never anticipated being in the IT uh, role in any way, but I'd had quite a bit of experience with large programs and and technology. And so a couple of the leaders at the agency called and asked me to serve as the deputy. And during that time, uh, we had started uh, the cloud procurement for what was known as iSight or the Intelligence Community Information Technology Enterprise. And the the current CIO, she had uh, worked with her team and had set up an acquisition with the idea that we would go out and access the best of cloud technology. And this cloud technology at that point was really just starting to emerge. Uh, But we also realized as an agency that we were having a difficult time keeping up. And our ability to actually uh, acquire and deploy and get onto our infrastructure uh, some of the different capabilities and the advanced technology that was out there, it was increasingly difficult and we were increasingly falling behind. And so the whole uh, commercial cloud procurement was really focused on how can we keep the agency as current as possible with the latest in information technology. And so we had a we had a acquisition where uh, we had some of the traditional things where people had to write a proposal, but we also had demonstrations where vendors needed to go out and quickly bring up cloud infrastructure technology just as they would on the commercial enterprise. And through that process, it turned out that uh, Amazon Web Services was the leading contender in that, and we ended up selecting them. We had to go through a little bit of a, of a protest period, and then um, ultimately it was determined that Amazon would be, would be the vendor. And so I was deputy through that process. And then right as that process was finishing, I ended up transitioning into the CIO role. And so 
Uh, we worked with Amazon. I had a very talented team that worked with me, but we worked with them to deploy the cloud infrastructure um, to build that out over the next uh, nine months or so, do all of the security accreditation, and then start bringing on applications. And it was more of a challenge than I think we collectively realized to get people to consider using the cloud. And the notion that we could just acquire Amazon and everybody would have immediately run to that infrastructure was was not true, and including some of the CIO people that, that were building the applications. And so I had to do a lot and draw on a lot of program management skills to really start to get those early cloud adopters, find the people that were most interested in innovating. And uh, over time, we were able to build that up and to the point where I believe the commercial cloud has been very successful at this point. Doug, I have so many questions. <laughs> just yeah. go in so many directions. So let me pull back for a minute because you, you didn't just do it for the agency. You did right. it for 17 intelligence community organizations across the, the board, which so I, I need to back up and talk about, you know, ask you a question. What were the hopes from a benefit perspective to have all this collaboration on the cloud? What, what were your hopes to, to achieve on that? So I think it was it was the notion that the intelligence community had a lot of a lot of data and a lot of infrastructure, and um, we were also uh, in partnership with Fort Meade. They were building some cloud infrastructure that they were doing more as a as a government funded cloud. Our side was the commercial cloud, and the notion of iSight was that if we worked together as a community, we could bring a lot of data together and bring a lot of high end applications. Um, and, and a lot of cutting-edge commercial applications together so we could get insights much more quickly from our data. So, you know, I, I can imagine having, you know, worked with some tech, new technology companies that are pushing innovation. Did you have any challenges with people believing and seeing the possibility? So it, it was difficult um, in terms of, you know, people are, people are uh, involved in their day-to-day -day activities. They're building out. IT systems, they're buying and deploying their own. Um, I always bought and deployed my own too, so it was a little bit of a cultural thing to to think about changing for me as well. But um, over time, I think people started to realize a lot of the development uh, and operations environment of the cloud, that if you really take advantage of the of the things that are there, there's a lot of security and availability features that are inherent in that infrastructure and that you don't have to design that in each time. And so our hope was that the talent that we funded at the agency would be talent that would be very much involved in deploying the applications as opposed to the basics of, of just doing the IT and infrastructure. One of, the, one of the interesting stories that happened along the way is we had we had some early adopters and they did very well and, and they transitioned to a new uh, set of fabric on the AWS services and they were ready to turn the old one off. And um, the guy came in and said, yeah, we just shut these down. He said, in the past, we've had to go through a whole disposal plan and everything else, but on the cloud infrastructure, we could just turn off the servers we weren't using and move to the new ones. And the flexibility of that was something that people really started to appreciate. And so as those stories started to accumulate, over time, people got excited about the, the cloud capabilities and, and potential. So, Doug, you chose a single cloud provider to award to, and, and you had a ton of protests along the way. Kind of sounds familiar to what we're seeing today around Jedi. Um, before we talk to Jedi, though, let's 
let's focus on because I have tons of questions there. <laughs> uh, why did the agency choose one cloud? Well, I think at at that time, um, it was the the cloud technology was much earlier in its development life cycle and. When you really looked at who was performing cloud technology at a commercial level, um, there were only a handful that could even get through the different gates to say we could go compete at this level. And then uh, buying buying one was something where we were really plowing a lot of new ground. And, and just getting that transition that I talked about a few minutes ago uh, done on one infrastructure would have been uh, pretty significant. I think if you look where the cloud technology is today, there are a number of, of players and offerings that are much, much more um, uh, robust and much, much more performant than where we were uh, a couple of years ago. And um, I don't know for sure, but if we were to redo this uh, acquisition today, uh, I think we would, we would definitely be thinking about potentially having multiple vendors be eligible for the award. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network Radio, part of Federal News Network. Um, We're talking today with Doug Wolf, former CIO and former Deputy Director of Science Technology of the CIA. Doug, you led right into my next question, which is, if you were to do the contract again, uh, what what consideration would the advances of technology or the benefits of a multi-cloud award you would move forward on a multi-cloud strategy. Um, so what? why? I mean, here the intelligence community is, you know, that, that really worried about security, you know, known for, no offense, not sharing. Um, you know, here you're going to be on somebody else's infrastructure. You're going to be on two people's infrastructure or multiple companies' infrastructures. Why would you think that now's the time to be able to embrace that kind of architecture? Well, so a couple things. The uh, in terms of the infrastructure, we we built um, separate infrastructure for the original one, and we would continue to do that for the classified applications. So, it wasn't that we were going out to the commercial infrastructure, but we would be bringing in um, an equivalent of the commercial infrastructure, but for classified applications. Um, I I think that if you look across the spectrum of the of the cloud providers and the and the technology that each has, I think there's there's things there that would be of definite interest that uh, a lot of these major companies bring, and I think if you're if you're choosing one that you're then not getting some of the benefits of some of the other infrastructure. And the goal here is not really to pick a contractor; it's to get technology that helps us stay ahead of our adversaries and. I personally believe that that being able to stay ahead of the most formidable adversaries really requires the best of the best across uh, multiple cloud providers. Now, Doug, I know you're not intimately involved with Jedi, but I got to ask you, um, from an observation perspective, do you think the Department of Defense is doing the right thing by going with a single cloud provider on Jedi? Well, it's it's a good question. I, I think they're doing the right thing by going to the cloud and um, and really making a, a push in that direction. I think there's a lot more to the cloud now, and it needs to be thought through with not just more central computing, but with edge computing and all of the uh, information technology needs that are that are required globally and and in the um, operational domains. Uh, my hope is that. 
as as it's and I understand that it there's one provider that's that's being selected, but that there's a plan for multiple providers uh, down the road, and that and that the people that are actually implementing the technology throughout the department have some amount of choice in terms of where and how they might deploy uh, some of those applications. I do think there's a lot of progress been made on interoperability across clouds. And there's a number of companies that pride themselves on being able to uh, seamlessly provide a lot of that interoperability. So even that challenge is not potentially where it was five or six years ago. And you can run a lot of different workloads in multiple clouds, just as done on the outside commercially. Your, your answer brought a question to my mind. Um, you know, you had some protests on the, the Insight Award, um, but it was more over having one vendor versus multiple. Some of the protests, after reading um, uh, some of the uh, protests that have been submitted, um, has brought up some speculation on this particular contract. Um, does it ri- raise question, and, and I'm going to bring back, you know, a, a, a situation that happened many years ago, uh, Darlene Bunyan, is this starting to rise to that occasion that you, you think that, you know, because there's so much to win and so much to lose on this contract that people have lost focus and maybe there's occasion or, or something there that should be relooked at? Well, I I hate to say I don't believe it's it's back to some of the historical cases that you cite. Um, but it is certainly if if you're going to award to one vendor, it is a major business opportunity and it's uh, a great outcome for one vendor and not a great outcome for the other vendors, uh, sort of by definition. And so um, I think that's going to some some of the challenges are going to come in a in a more winner take all type type environment. You're you're going to get the also the challenges of winner take all. The good news is you'll have one winner, one cloud. Maybe it's uniform, and that particular that helps. Um, the bad news is going to be you're going to have um, a good handful of very capable cloud cloud providers that didn't win, and of course they're not going to be overly enthusiastic about that most likely. Um, so, I th- I think that's it. It just comes with the acquisition strategy, and it's to be expected. I'm speaking with Doug Wolf, former CIO and former Deputy Director of Science Technology of the CIA. Coming up, we'll talk about Doug's view on the next big technology wave. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today we're talking with Doug Wolf, former CIO and former Deputy Director of Science and Technology, the CIA. So, Doug, bringing the cloud to the agency was huge. But then you went on to even a bigger role, which was the Deputy Director of Science and Technology. So, first, tell us, what is it in the day of the life of someone in that role? I mean, I can't imagine being at the agency having that kind of overview of technology. So it, it's an amazing position to to be there, and um, the uh, the ability to work with the full spectrum of technology across all kinds of different domains is is absolutely a privilege. The ability to think about how to do 
operational support that um, the S&T folks do is amazing, as well as the um, collection systems that they build and operate every day. And uh, it's it's just one directorate of an amazing set of men and women that are very dedicated to making this making this mission successful. So uh, it, w- it was a great opportunity to see a, a lot of different technological developments. So you said mission. So can you tell us about their specific mission and programs? I mean, can you can you share? I mean, I'm sure there's well, some young people out there listening that are kind of interested. Well, maybe maybe not as much, but at the same time, I think, um, and just putting myself back in my original shoes in terms of thinking about coming to the CIA, uh, what I would say is that as you would as you would come into the CIA, that you would be impressed in many cases of the number of things that we can do, and then in some cases it might not be quite as much as you might anticipate that is in in the movies. But um, the the uh, the technology that that is routinely deployed is, is, is actually very impressive. I will also say that the ability to partner with industry is increasingly important. And a lot of the technology that, um, for example, satellite reconnaissance, when I first came in, it was largely government-based technology, but now you see a whole resurgence of reconnaissance technology and small sats and EO imagers and even uh, radar imagers that commercial companies are deploying. And so being a part of a government infrastructure that needs to work with and figure out how to leverage and take advantage of that of that commercial technology, to me, it was very exciting because we got a great window and and the companies were were fantastic to work with in terms of getting that technology into the mission. So you, you obviously were a pioneer in cloud computing. You saw the vision. You've been in a seat at the table where you can really see what tomorrow's technology is like. So I got to ask you, Doug, because I'm willing to bet on whatever you're betting on. Um, what do you see as the next big thing in technology? Well, there's there's probably a handful of things. Um, I, I do think that the IT infrastructure, the big data analytics and cyber are are going to be there for a significant period of time. And there's huge opportunity uh, in terms of doing that well. The downside is, and it's the way most of these technologies go, is that as our adversaries do that well, there's um, significant threats as well. On the cyber front, uh, every company, country, uh, government in the world is keenly interested in protecting their IT infrastructure. Um, but one of the things that we were able to do within the government was also kind of compete in the in the cyber uh, uh, challenge, if you will, if, if not conflict, but, you know, there's a, there's a continuous uh, cyber challenge out there with, with foreign gov- governments, with other entities, and being part of that, that challenge was uh, pretty exciting and, um, and definitely a, a very important thing for national security. A couple other technologies that I think are, are worth mentioning are technology areas. Um, the biotech world, um, a lot of developments there. It's it's uh, leveraging a lot of the IT and big data, but the pace of development is absolutely amazing. And the opportunity for good associated with healthcare and a whole bunch of other things is, is tremendous. Um, once again, the threat could be significant in terms of some of the uh, biotechnology things that might be being developed out there. Um, the other thing that is, is interesting, I alluded to space a little bit, but space is certainly a domain where uh, a lot of technology is moving very fast. Our adversaries are 
are doing a lot more in the space domain um, than maybe in the past. There's a lot of commercial interest, and being part of that industry is is very helpful. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. We're here today in the studio talking with Doug Wolf, former CIO and former Deputy Director of Science Technology. So, Doug, you you bring up um, you know our our other countries' advancement in technology. Um, China's advancement in investments in technology make the headlines just about every day. Um, we talked about the lack of maybe the investment in seeing uh, the needed res- intelligence resources to help our nation be prepared for something like 9-11. Um, do you think there's maybe a lack of foresight and investment in technology that could be putting the U.S. in less than a favorable position? No, I, I think the investment is actually um, is, is there, and I think there's, there's an awareness of it. Um, I, I do think there's probably cases where we need to be a, a lot more focused and work a lot more collaboratively to actually um, do the things that we, that we know we need to do. I certainly think there's um, a, a lot of technology being developed in China, and I'm, I'm not the expert on exactly where they are across these things. But I also see the innovation uh, across the U.S. And to the extent that we can really take advantage of our entrepreneurial uh, industry, uh, work with larger companies and small companies, the national labs, the universities, we have tremendous talent and opportunity here. And so taking the investment and resources that we have and applying those as effectively as as possible, I, I think is really what needs to be done and I, I think there's a lot of opportunity that we could we could really achieve before we started putting actually more money into the system. So I, AI is going to change just about every job and just about you know any, everything you go. I mean, McDonald's just recently bought an AI company. I mean, you know, they're yeah. they're using artificial intelligence and taking leveraging into cloud computing to help us uh, make decisions on hamburgers. So it certainly is going to affect us in many ways. Um, what do you think is with the marriage of AI, um, cloud computing, uh, with the highways being built to the potential 5G, you know, uh, being able to pull all that data together and be able to do analysis on it? That's, you know, that's the big, you know, uh, goal and objective here. Um, what do you think are some of the biggest concerns about this perfect storm for productivity, but it's also a perfect storm for some negative things, too? Um, for sure, it's a great opportunity to uh, to to bring the data together um, to move it rapidly across that infrastructure. I I personally believe there's a lot of kind of basics that need to be done to really understand uh, what data you have to have it to have it uh, tagged appropriately to be able to manage that appropriate appropriately to understand in the artificial intelligence um, what decisions or recommendations that it might be making and why. And there's a lot of prerequisites that need to really be thought through. Um, I work some at the agency on the on the privacy issues, and we did a, a huge amount there. But just understanding data and privacy and doing that at a scale and pace that needs to be done are the kind of kind of things and the basics that need to be in place to really take advantage of of the AI. Um, down down the road, I think the one of the one of the key goals is going to be to be able to uh, transition the smarter algorithms 
into the locations where they where they might need to be used. There's a lot of emphasis on developing algorithms or maybe having the perfect algorithm, but if we don't get it deployed to the edge or to the uh, analyst or the decision maker for for a given scenario, um, you can have the best AI in the world and it's of not really a lot of use for a given operational time. I'm speaking with Doug Wolf, former CIO and former Deputy Director of Science Technology at the CIA. Coming up, we'll talk about Doug and his perspective on fake news and how technology can be used to influence elections. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today we're talking with Doug Wolf, former CIO and former Deputy Director of Science and Technology at the CIA. Doug, when you were at the agency, you were at the time when the last presidential election, a very busy time, there were many headlines if technology could have been used to influence or change the outcome of the election. Do you think it's possible that something like that could happen? So I think it's definitely possible that there was intent to uh, create some chaos and put uh, some information out there that may not have been accurate. And it's certainly technically possible to do that. Um, my, my personal view on this is that you really ultimately have to, have to trust the voters in terms of uh, the, the kinds of decisions that they make and that we need a secure election system in that the, the votes are counted and, and counted properly. Um, my, my sense is that uh, while there were attempts to do various things, that ultimately the voters made decisions. And I think the American voter in general is, is pretty smart and savvy and knows um, you know, how, to, how to assess and analyze uh, fake news. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of things that can get out there on the line and a lot of stories that can get legs. And with the IT infrastructure and the, and the web, of course, they can be pushed aggressively. But in the end, um, a lot of these things need to be vetted and need to be understood and thought through. And, and I think the voters are very good at doing that. So I got to back up for a moment. I mean, um, in your definition, what is fake news? And um, where can fake news really, really take root and momentum? So I, w- I would say that, I mean, the way I think of it is fake news is, is fake messaging and that the fake messaging is designed to not necessarily create, but to increase the perceptions and beliefs of a, of a given, given group versus uh, another group. And, and I think you can see that come about uh, from from virtually any any source whether it's uh, in the in the print media and it's not as if it hasn't happened in the print media even before this last election all the way to the internet and blogs uh, Twitter etc but fake messaging is the thing that is is the match if you will that can that can light the fire and if it is not uh, thought through and properly vetted and properly, uh, understood by uh, the reporting community, then you have the threat of it growing into a much bigger story that becomes a story itself. Um, done right, I believe we could we could deal with most of the fake messaging 
that's out there and and really get more to ground truth on exactly what was happening. Well, I know you probably have said to your kids, I have said to mine, I don't believe everything you've read on the Internet. Um, what can industry be doing to help prevent some of this momentum? Um, you know, you can't help but uh, pick up the newspaper at least once a week. You read something about Facebook, um, you know, and, and I know you have some some kids that are uh, at those formidable, if you know, ages. Um, what advice would you have to citizens and industry to help, you know, stop this kind of momentum happening with fake news? So I think it's worth understanding, uh, understanding, uh, and and thinking through your beliefs and make sure that those come from multiple sources. Um, any single source report is it's certainly got the risk of bias, if not being fake messaging in that process. Uh, I do believe that the technology is there to detect the kinds of messages that could be uh, uh, of, of challenging nature in terms of being uh, harmful or hurtful. Not that we want to be uh, censoring speech per se, but at the same time, uh, being able to flag things that could be uh, out there that haven't been verified is something that I, I believe the technology is in place to do. I also recognize there's going to be a market for those who want to talk about opinions and opinions on politics. That's fine, but people should understand that a lot of those cases are really just opinions and they shouldn't be necessarily viewed as, as news without better vetting. You're listening to Leaders in Legend in, in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. We're talking with Doug Wolf, former CIO and former Deputy Director of Science Technology with the CIA. So, Doug, I got to ask you what's next for uh, Doug. You've had such an incredible uh, career. So, right now, I am CEO at a small company called Blacklinks. We are doing high performance computing, and I'm excited about that. We're optimizing compute across a number of different devices. And we see a lot of use cases in government and industry that we can apply our technology to. Um, I'm also doing a little bit of consulting and enjoying being retired from the government for the moment, but keeping keeping very busy. So thank you, Aileen. For, for the next generation uh, of technology and intelligence community leaders, what key advice would you give and any predictions to the biggest challenges or opportunities they will face in the next decade? Well, I think in terms of next generation, and if you're interested in the intelligence community, um, go specialize in something, virtually all of the technical areas that we can think of from software to biotech to double E to space, et cetera, are of interest. And then uh, pursue it with passion and really maintain your curiosity across all of those things, because ultimately good intelligence professionals are very curious and are never really satisfied with uh, their level of understanding nor the technology that they're deploying. That's good advice for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government. My guest today has been Doug Wolf, former CIO and former Deputy Director of Science and Technology at the Central Intelligence Agency. Doug, first, thank you for your service. Uh, I know you've made a difference in this country. And I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your amazing journey. I'm Aileen Black. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.